0: I'm going to start with Hafiz this morning. First of all, welcome. <laughs> Good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, it it's a been a wonderful lecture to work on, actually. Uh, it really, I guess, broadened the boundaries of my Vedantic mind. It's going to be my first lecture with no no Swamiji references, no gospel references, no Takua references, although I'm sure that's impossible, I'm sure the come in there somewhere. But uh, yes, in the notes, they're all from another tradition today. And uh, to sit there before mother and ask her to write a lesson in another tradition was a great experience. Actually, we had a very nice time working in that space. And uh, to share this poem from Hafiz is also quite a delight. It's it's not one that I've done before because it's longer, and I usually pick the shorter ones. But here it is. And if we Put our mind in this space, we're going to be okay. It's called The Small Table of Time and Space. (laughs) I am a golden compass, watch me whirl. To the east and to the west, to the north and to the south, in all directions, I will true your course toward laughter and unity. To everywhere I will deliver enlightenment on the backs of camels and birds and strong pilgrims. Into every country I will carry the holy names and dance and dance. I am a golden compass. Watch me sing and spin illustrious strands of lyric and truth. I am a divine agent. Your passage to light, your ticket, may need my stamp. My foot and verse are now ecstatic and mid-air. Just place your head beneath my leaping arch. We will fall upon you. Watch me whirl into nothingness your fears and darkness. Just keep tossing them on my golden plate. I am a holy instrument always tuned by God who lives beyond every dimension. I have been lifted drunk off the floor in a magnificent tavern. Now at my seat upon the divine love, I gaze at everything with brilliant, clear eyes. I can so easily lean my cheek across this small table of time and space and let you touch my beautiful, laughing, woolly beard. Hafiz is an emerald compass. My knowledge will put manna in your purse. My only duty that now remains to this world is from every direction, to forever see, to serve you wine and hope. Hafiz is a golden skirt the beloved has lifted off of a magnificent floor, has tied around his waist. Oh, watch us whirl. Watch us whirl. Just watch us whirl. Anything that reminds me of a day like that is going to be a favorite. I was complaining to Ma again this morning. I (laughs) still think she's being a little stingy. (laughs) Not to pour more light at a quicker pace, maybe to give us a little bit more than we can manage to push us off of our little stools of security for a moment. We're going to talk about, uh, this morning, the Crucifixion and the Godhead. It's a Christian lecture. And uh, I'm giving it, well, I'm giving it, I guess, because it happened. But uh, the things that came along in my eye, in my mind, I was reading a wonderful book by a Christian mystic named Simone Weil, who I'm going to uh, quote quite a bit at the end. And she provided me with such a beautiful ideal of what uh, what those are, what the Godhead is, and what the crucifixion was about. Uh, I grew up as a Christian, as you know, and uh, in my Vedanta, I always struggled because I couldn't quite find a place for those two, well, that one event and that one idea of the Godhead, the Trinity, and the idea of the crucifixion. I just simply couldn't fit them into our puzzle of Prakriti and Purusha or (laughs) any of those things, and through uh, the writings of this particular saint, uh, I got a wonderful idea and got very excited about it and thought that that should be talked about. So I'm going to share that. Uh, We're going to go through and talk about uh, the father and his role in Christianity. We're going to talk about, uh, uh, (laughs) I feel like a a mother with her kids. I'm like, Ramakrishna, no Vivekananda, no Jesus. (laughs) We're going to talk about Jesus, the son, and then the Holy Spirit, And then the crucifixion and its role in all of it and how this fits into our perspective of uh, in Vedanta, both Advaitic and dual, uh, both as uh, different and the same as it goes. We're going to start at the very beginning. I'm going to start in the book of uh, John in the New Testament. Now, I I never know when I go into these how much anybody knows, so I'll give you a quick rundown. I think uh, the Bible... Uh, which is the main literature of the Christian tradition, as you know, is actually not a book. It's actually a collection of books. I think, I hate the fact that this is being recorded, my ignorance will be broadcast. I think there's 66. I didn't have time to Google it before I got up here. I think there's 66 Bibles, or uh, books in the Bible in total. They're divided into two portions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Testament means contract, and so the Old Testament is our contract with God in the old days, and that is a contract of law, the Ten Commandments, and uh, a a set of of rituals and rules for being near to God and for knowing God, and uh, rules for sacrificing uh, spilling blood for our shortcomings, and so that uh, is still venerated as uh, the teachings for the Jewish tradition, which is inseparable from the Christian tradition, because out of that tradition came the New Testament, which is the new contract with God, which was sealed in the person of Jesus as an incarnation of God, as the Son of God. And uh, uh, the whole thing builds on that, because actually the Old Testament uh, is where the Christians went to find the prophecies that told them who the Messiah was going to be. In the, Christian, in the Jewish tradition, God promised to send a Messiah, to send someone who would release them from their bondage, and uh, kind of gave little hints here and there that only <laughs> the highest of scholars would be able to discern. But they're there in little pieces in the Old Testament. And so uh, Jesus was the fulfillment of this old uh, Testament prophecy, according to the Christians. Uh, the Jews, I believe, still maintain that he's still to come. Uh, but uh, So that's why the Bible has both in it. That's why you have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And then the New Testament is actually a collection of letters uh, written by different disciples of Jesus. The first four, as you know, are written by his direct disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're uh, just kind of them, like like we have the gospel of Ramakrishna, this is the gospel of Jesus, the, the good news of Jesus according to those disciples. And then there's a few little books in there that kind of tell what happened in the early days of the church. And then you get letters that the St. Paul wrote to uh, the early churches around the Mediterranean that he had started. Uh, when I first got into Vedanta, I immediately identified Vivekananda with, the apostle Paul, because they played very much the same role to their masters. Uh, You know, uh, Paul, uh, well, interesting, there's one major difference there, which is always quite puzzling to me. But, you know, Jesus was a teacher, and, of course, he wandered around Judea there and gave teaching, but Paul is the one responsible for really letting the bird out of the cage. Uh, He wandered all over the ancient world teaching about Jesus, and interestingly, that put him in touch with a lot of the issues that the, that the Ramakrishna movements facing today. Uh, they had to decide what was cultural and what was necessary in the teachings of Jesus. You know uh, one of the early conversations, believe it or not, was whether in fact everybody had to be circumcised or all the men had to be circumcised to become Christians or not because certainly they did to be Jewish, and so did that have to be carried over um, and things like that, uh, even Jesus uh, broke out of the shell a little bit and blessed some Gentiles, some non-Jewish people, which caused a little bit of an uproar uh, amongst his community. So it's an interesting mirroring. You can see the processes. You can see the, the growth and how it happens and, and uh, uh, see very much a, a, a kind of an echo in the two occurrences, which is very comforting to uh, someone who sees the truth in all religions, someone who knows that uh, this play of the mother uh, is is all-inclusive. So with that little bit of background, we're going to jump into it, and uh, hopefully we'll be done by one thirty. <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not a natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, and has made him known. All right, so this is the first uh, 20 verses of the book of John, the Gospel in the New Testament. And uh, John the Baptist was kind of a forerunner to Jesus. They were actually cousins, uh, born around the same time, actually, uh, I think it was John's mother and, and Mary were pregnant at the same time. And uh, John uh, became one of the desert monks, you know, dressed in animal skins and lived in the cave and renounced the world. So he was kind of a sadhu out there, and uh, he went out and kind of prepared the way. That was, his, that was his task, was to announce that this Messiah had come. So he's out there teaching, and here he says some very wonderful things that, oddly enough, um, as a Christian, I read over them and didn't really understand them, but kind of let them go. As a Vedantist, I came back and read this, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, that's an interesting dichotomy being set up there. We have this Word, which is the manifestation of God. So he's separating the manifesting power of God with the existing power of God, you see? Because it says here... That without him, nothing was made that has been made. So all creation happened through this this, uh, power of God, very familiar to us as Vedantins, that we have God the absolute. Now, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, the lines get blurred, but in the New Testament, it stays very clear. And uh, we'll get into exactly uh, that meaning at the end. I'll save the best for the last part. So, But it says here that the word was with God. Okay, so there's separation There's an apparent distinction between the Word and God, and the Word was God. So we have that Advaitic duality-non-duality mystery going on here in the very first verse of the book of John. This idea that this apparent world, seeming as dual, seeming as other than God, seeming as separate from God, who was made only by the power of God, you know, in this, this power of Maya, but that this power, this, this appearance, though seemingly separate from God also shares that unity with God, shares that oneness with God. So we have someone pointing at Advaita within the Christian scriptures, which is a very new teaching, uh, at least to me. (laughs) I have read some books actually in the last six months that have, don't make it so new. They were pondering this idea actually back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, certainly if you read, interestingly enough, if you get into this idea of Advaita and Christianity, uh, many of the earlier texts that didn't make it into the Bible, either because for whatever reason, or they were discovered after the Bible was compiled, have very Vedantic uh, underpinnings. If you read the Gospel of Thomas, uh, his his. his Scripture talks a lot about this unity, this this unifying uh, power of God, where we all actually merge and enjoy that unity. So, if you want to get into that study, that's where you go. Go to these, go to these Gnostic gospels and to the Gospel of Thomas. And I found it interesting that Thomas is the most Advaitic, and he was the one that went to India, you know, and uh, started those early churches down in Kerala, I believe it is. So, an interesting tie over there. So through him all things were made. So we have Jesus being the manifestation in the flesh of God at work, just like the idea of Ishvara, God manifesting, God becoming flesh, God living amongst us. Now, once again, we have a lot of uh, uh, um, language in here that seems to be separating, exclusive, language of the exclusive that we're going to run into and uh, read through, that he's the only son of God. Okay. That i That's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll let that lie. It's mostly because of the paradigm, because who was his father, if you accept the story as it's told, that Jesus had this virgin birth, so that Mary had a birth with with God as the father. There's not really any other option, I mean, unless he impregnated a man, and then the story would have gotten really out of hand <laughs> these days, and so... God naturally is the Father, and this is his Son, and uh, uh, he's come into the world to give this life that is his nature, this, this, uh, this love that is his nature to all mankind, and uh, mankind, because we're stuck, didn't recognize him. So who is this Father? We're going to go in that order. We're going to start with the Father, then we're going to hit the Son, and then we're going to hit what the Christians refer to as the Holy Spirit, Moses said to God, so we're in the Old Testament, Moses is talking. Then Moses said to God, if I, come to, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What am I going to tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever and ever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we see here that God is the I am, also a very Vedantic ideal, that God is this present moment, that God is his existence is another way of putting it. Now, I find it very interesting on returning to uh, the scriptures of the Christians and reading through them to find how context, you know, that, that this idea of these religions being languages of God to peoples at different times, how context really changes the look and feel, but doesn't touch the message. The message is very much the same. You know, that there's this long history of trying to find God among the race of the Jews. And in India, you know, this long history of trying to find God uh, th- through the history of the Vedas and through the, the search and quest for, for knowing uh, this divine principle. And Buddha, you know, with its, with its message, you know, that that was, this may be controversial to some, I don't know, that Buddha, Buddha really is Hinduism without the Hindu context, <laughs> you know? That Buddha was forced outside of India, and so when he gave his teachings, he gave them to people who weren't familiar with the Mahabharata, to people who weren't familiar with the Ramayana, who, who weren't familiar with this line of, of avatars that had been teaching you know, within India. And it's not really his fault that that context wasn't there. The scriptures had forbidden any sannyasins for going over the Himalayas or crossing the ocean. So when his teachings crossed the Himalayas, they became their own thing because they didn't have a pot to put them in. They didn't have a box to put them in. And Buddhism took on its own flavors and its own characters, even though it was coming from the same scriptures and the same teachings, as, as many of the other Vedantist monks and Vedantist reformers. But you can see how history and context takes this, this Sanatana Dharma, take this eternal religion and give it a flavoring and give it a get of a disposition and a personality that's distinct and interesting. And when I come into this Christianity to see the way that they talk about the Absolute as Father, and they talk about the Word as being the manifestation, you know, independent of all of the Vedantic terms that that spark ideas in my mind. But I can tell you it's so refreshing to have had the Vedantic ideals and understandings and then to come back to Christianity and find, find the echoes and the flavorings that have really brought it to life and really given it a depth and giving it, giving it an explanation that nobody was able to give uh, before. You know, the, the many, Much of the religion that I grew up with was almost a list of rules, do's and don'ts. Do this, you'll be all right. Believe this, you'll be all right. But if you asked why, you didn't have to ask more than once or twice before they started questioning you. <laughs> like, well, what's, what's wrong with these answers? God gave them. Do you have a problem with God? You know, what's, what's the condition of your heart that you can't accept them as they are? You know, all these terrible things that as a child, I remember like, oh, my God, I, I was wrong for even asking. Uh, but to, through a great comfort to me, uh, stumbling into Vedanta, from my perspective, being gently carried there by mother from a different perspective, and being given the answers to these questions is a beautiful thing. And to see that we have this father uh, who, whose only request is to be remembered, to be remembered always throughout all generations. You know, from there, he's drawing it across many lines. But what is our greatest instruction as Vedantins? It's to remember God always, to keep that as our homing. Uh, device, our golden compass, as it were, to find the direction, and we can see that direction manifested again to us through Jesus and His life. In the book of Second John, John wrote three books, I think, for Second, Third John. I think so. Anyway, in the second book, he says about God the Father: He says, "Grace, mercy, and peace come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father." will continue to be with us who live in truth and in love. So we see that God is the source. This Father is the source of love, the source of grace, the source of peace, the source of compassion, which is very important because that's not how I how he's often portrayed. He's often portrayed merely as the judge, <laughs> quite often as the finger pointer, which is very interesting because the Christian scriptures say that the one who's pointing fingers is actually not God. We come to that Christian idea of a devil or of Satan, someone who's opposed to God. The name for the devil in the Old Testament is the accuser. So you can know, you can take that into a context, use that in your practice. That voice in your head that's accusing you, that's pointing fingers at you, is not the voice of love. It's not the voice of the divine. The divine keeps no record of wrongs, we've learned. The divine does not remember uh, these things, but looks at you in your highest ideal, sees the highest in you. So make that distinction when you are in your practice, or when you've missed one of your meditations and you feel embarrassed to go in for your second practice. You know, Tucker may poke at you, but he won't accuse you. So keep that in mind. Grace, mercy, and peace come from the Father. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Now, he's talking about the Old Testament versus this new contract. He's highlighting these ideas in the book of John. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, There it is, this universality of the Father. He doesn't belong to a particular person, to a particular group, to a particular nation, to a particular history. Every time we hear from from the divine directly, we get that message, that he's here for all of us, that he's here for everybody, that he cares and, and, and the gifts of his caring fall equally on all of us, that all of us are his children, you know, we recognize ourselves as children, then we, then we become inspired by that message. We want to be like him. He becomes our father. And what's our thought of our father? You know, for, the, for the sons, anyway, it's like, yeah, we're going to be dad. <laughs> Depending on the relationship, of course, that's all over the map. But in general, that's how we feel. And that this idea of, of loving, of, of eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, this idea of revenge gets put away. You know, that, that God's focus now is not so much on payment. You know, everybody pay their dues. Everybody pay up. You know, that you've broken the law. Now you have to, to pay for that. Someone has to die for that. You know, that now the emphasis is, okay, we're going to get that taken care of. Because I'm going to pay for it. He's saying through, through Jesus. Even I'm going to pay that debt. And now you can get on about the business of loving. Loving freely. Loving compassionately. Loving deeply. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's your call. That's your call. In a book of Corinthians, it says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So we have God, this Father, is the source of all comfort. He should be the source of of this idea of this this divine principle, is the the source of strength. It's it's the reason that we're nice people. (laughs) It's the reason that we care about each other. Because we recognize and we fill ourselves with this idea of grace, this idea of love that goes all the way down. We fill ourselves with that. And what comes back, what echoes out of that is our ability to give. Our ability to get past our own problems. Our ability to get past our own little world and our small minds. Our mind can make a hell of this world. It can put walls up that are so close and so stifling. It can remove meaning. It can remove love. It can remove purpose. It can remove depth. It can remove the very desire to get out of bed in the morning. And what can break that down? knowing the love of God, being intimately aware of this grace, touching it within, finding the reality of it within the self, within the heart, and to see it manifested and see it mirrored in the stories of love around us that have endured through the ages of Thakur, of Ma, of Jesus, of Buddha, you know, of Hafiz, Rumi, <laughs> these great knowers and seers of the divine to find our strength in knowing that the nature that we were created in the image that we were made in is of love is the source of compassion is the source of caring is the source of giving the source of comfort the source of strength and to be inspired by that and the second part of that always is to not <laughs> not just to become self-satisfied selfish people but to become self-satisfied so that we can spill over. So that we can get outside of ourselves. Break into the world. Now we'll come into Jesus, the Son. So the, the Christians, you know, have this idea of the Trinity, that God is three. He's the Father, he's the Son, and he's the Holy Spirit. And it's, you know, they like that word mystery. Because how can you have three that are actually One. Uh, but they go to great extent to, to to prove that and to say that. So it's very important to keep the distinction for for a reason I'm not sure of. But that these three are here. So the second part is the sun, which is eternal. It's Prakriti to us. It's God manifesting to us. You know, the, the, that first scripture there said it was the word, and the word was there since the beginning. And that nothing was made without this word that was made. So, so this manifestation of God... Yes, at one point it became Jesus, but at one point it became everything. At one point it became all of us. At one point it manifested everything of God in the world. And then, yes, at some point it became Jesus too, but it's much bigger than that. It's much more accessible than that. It's the same word that's manifesting through all of the different prophets of all of the different nations, of all of the different religions throughout time. Nothing was made. That was made without this word. This principle that is beyond Jesus. This principle that is bigger and more inclusive than just Jesus. We see from the very scriptures the principle that made all things and brings everything into being. That this is our Father and our Son as well, this perfect manifestation. So in the book of John again, The Jews then said to Jesus, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A fascinating little interplay here. He made a reference to to Abraham as if he knew something personally about Abraham. And the Jews are jumping on him and says, You're not even 50, and you're saying that you knew Abraham. And Jesus says something here very amazing, very profound. I learned this in seminary, actually. This phrase that he says there, he says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The word that he uses for I am there is the same word that God uses when he tells Moses to, to who sent him. So you get this, this, this link-up going on here, that anything that is manifested of God is this I am. This existence. Anything given existence has a portion of that I am within it. And so Jesus was making a very direct reference. I am that. I I am God, you know. And the and from the Christian perspective, they allow that for Jesus. But there's some other interesting things that are going to come up here in a few moments that he says. So their reaction to that. You know, it would be very similar to, to what would happen to me if I was to stand up in a Christian church this morning and say, I am, I am that. <laughs> they went looking for stones. <laughs> they went looking for something to throw at him. And, uh, but Jesus hid and got out of the temple. Now, Matthew gives us a little example here, another insight into who this son is. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, the Lord of the heaven and the earth. Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary, who are burdened, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see this very intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father, You know that they only know each other fully, which is an interesting idea that we're going to pick up again. Can you keep track of all these little ideas we're going to pick up again in a moment? But this this intimacy that, that, that Jesus is the revelation, you know, this the, the the manifestation of God. Very similar to what Takor said when he when, when when we come to one of my favorite ideas that he said, I am a hole through which God can be seen. So so Jesus isn't a thing. Jesus is a manifestation. He's he's a, a, a whole of a thing. He's he's you look through Jesus at God, you know. You don't, you don't limit God by the form, just like you don't limit God by Takur. You look through it. You know, wonderful thing. I'm going to break my rule and reference, reference Vivekananda. <laughs> when he says, cause this is a very beautiful point that he says, he says, anything in this world, you can worship anything in this world and worship God, as long as you're worshiping through it. If your worship stops at the thing itself, that, that, that gives you karma. That gives you a, 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 a form of payment that's either going to have to be paid to you or you're going to have to pay out. So he says, for instance, you know, if, if, you, if you love your child and stop at the child, then you're going to suffer with that child as well as get joy with that child. But it's going to go back and forth. It's going to be good and bad and all of that in there. But if you worship love through that child, if you understand that that child is manifesting or reflecting back to you a nature that's already yours, and giving you an idea of what God is, then you're worshiping God through that child and your attachment becomes to the divine principle and not to the manifestation of it. And Vivekananda goes on to say the temple, in the, in the images of the temple, in all of the temples, all of the multitude of idols that Christians often accuse the, the, the Hindus of having, <laughs> which I find, never mind, but, uh, <laughs> but that he, ta- Vivekananda says, be sure that you're worshipping through the image. If you stop at the image, it's not such a bad thing. He says, if you worship this image as Thakur and stop there, he says, you'll, you'll get karma for that. Good karma, you'll go to Thakur Loka, Ramakrishna Loka. You'll get to go spend an, a whole lot of time with him. That's someplace really cool and wonderful. So it's not a terrible thing. But eventually that that karma will wear out. You'll come back here again, you know, and have to start and, and go from there. But he says, if you worship through the image, understand that this is a hole through which God can be seen. Very much like the attitude that Jesus is talking about here. I'm the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. We're going to look at that next. But this idea, worship through the image, understand the principle, the divine principle behind and Vivekananda says that gives moksha, that gives freedom, that doesn't entangle you in karma. So don't get caught up in the image. I, I worship this image, I like this image, I prefer this image, I prefer that image. You know, that's, that's, that's a misunderstanding. And you can take it outside of just the images of Vedanta and go to the images of any religion, any personalities, we get attached to these things, and that produces karma, and you can see what that karma is doing to the world, tearing us into pieces. Worship the divine principle through your images. Worship the design principle being manifested in your greatest ideals and your greatest teachers, and understand that this word that was at the beginning, that all things that were created came through him, and nothing that has been created or is existed without that divine principle Worship that divine principle. Raise the mind to that. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you, that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, "Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way?" Jesus answered, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do not you do know him and you have seen him." Philip said, <laughs> I love that there's some people in the scriptures that are as dense as I am. <laughs> Cuz I get it, what he's saying here, but Philip, who's right there with him, says, "'Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us.'" (laughs) Jesus answered, "'Don't you know me, Philip, "'even after I've been among you for such a long time? "'Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, show us the Father? "'Don't you believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me? "'The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority.'" Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. (laughs) I think I've read that somewhere before. But it was a mother. Believe me when I say that I am in the father and the father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Father will be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. In the 14th chapter, slightly before, before this, he says, I am in God and you are in me and I am in you. So you see that whole interplay. I don't know how you would draw that. So you've got I am in God. So you've got God, you've got a whole Jesus in there. And you are in me, so a smaller circle inside the Jesus, inside God. You know, and I am in you. So that unity is again being pointed at. That oneness of all things. You know, that we all collapse back into the Father. When the vibration of that first word ceases, you know, we all get taken right back into the one. Jesus said to them, he was talking to to the, he's been threatened again by by some of the Jewish teachers uh, that were angered by what he was teaching. He says to them, he's in the temple teaching, to give you the right context. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then he believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So you see, this notion of, of the body as temple is important in this. Because just in that previous passage where, he says, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but through me. This is where your Vedanta helps you understand the Christian scriptures in what he's saying. Because what does Jesus identify with? The body? No. He sees the body as the temple. He resides in the body. But he's not a body. He's not a personality. You know, He says, kill this body. Kill this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. Because I'm supra body. I'm bigger than that. You know? So when Jesus, when an avatar says, I. He's not thinking what, what, what you and I, the masses, think. A body. You know, because his eye isn't identified. That's the reason he's a Christ. That's the reason he's an avatar. Because he knows his nature. He knows his, he can say, before Abraham was, I am. He can say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Was with God, and I am that word. I've become flesh to dwell among you. He can say that. Because his eye is universal. It's the eye that came again as Ramakrishna, the eye that came as Buddha, the eye that came as Krishna, the eye that came as Ramha, the eye that has been coming again and again and again for, for what? To bring this light into the world, to be the light of men. And again and again and again we don't recognize it. And again and again and again we, we don't see it and understand it. Here he has come again in this form and telling us, you know, destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. You see, within, the, within the, the context, that was one of the signs of the Messiah. That he was going to raise from the dead. And why was he going to raise from the dead? To demonstrate that he was the master of this world as well. That there's nothing outside of the Father. That all of this came from him. And that God is the master of all. And so I've heard it said in Vedantic circles that, oh, well, he didn't really rise again. The body really didn't come back to life. No, it's very important within the Christian context that the body come back to life because the body is material. And this world in the Jewish dynamic and the Jewish understanding was other than God, was separate from God, you know. And for God to demonstrate, no, this is mine also, was very important to say, I have the power to do this. I am, the, the whole world is under my jurisdiction. Satan can do nothing without my, without my permission. You know, so within the Christian context, that was very important, that his body also be raised, that he, that he exists. And in that whole demonstration of raising this body and <laughs> raising this temple again in three days, we come into the Holy Spirit. He says to his disciples, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The other counselor, Holy Spirit, is spiritual intuition, which few know. It cannot be seen with the world's eyes, but it can be known by all who want to. Spiritual intuition, not blind belief, is the true meaning of faith. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Your own spiritual intuition will bring you to the reality and to peace. So we see here that Jesus again is giving this giving this spirit. We call it, you know, the, the first thing that we worship in the morning in the in the shrine here is the Guru, that Sadguru, Guru, that principle of learning and teaching that's hidden in all things, that principle of love, that divine principle. The Christians, for the Christians, that's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Educator, the Teacher. The spirit that gives you clarity, gives you understanding, gives you intuition into seeing things and to understanding things. That takes the upside down world of Maya and flips it right side up so that you can see what freedom is. Freedom isn't serving the body, but freedom is having the option of serving the body. You know, That you're separate from the mind, so freedom is not serving the mind. Freedom is having the option to serve the mind not being forced into situations because the body and mind is demanding it, but having the option to serve them. Likewise, in Romans, uh, Paul says, yes, we're doing all right, in Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows the what is the mind of the spirit? Because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is that ability of just laying it all on the plate before, before God, <laughs> before mother, before Thakur, before Jesus. It's going just saying, I don't even know what to ask for. I don't know what to ask for. You know, these things seem delightful to me, and they seem wonderful to me, and I really like them. But at the same time, I always seem to end up with burned fingers, and yet I can't seem to let go of these things. I don't see the problem in that. Please give me understanding. Let me see. Let me understand. So the Spirit of God, it comes, it, it, it comes out of the truth that Jesus is teaching. It's that awareness, that learning, that love is the divine principle. The nature of God and his manifestation is that love. And the manifestation of that love that's spiritual, that is existing within you, that is that becomes the guru that you can hear as you purify and quiet the mind, that this Holy Spirit is there to nurture you and to bring you and to give you strength and to give you an access to pray when you don't know what to pray, to give you an access to, to, to truth when you just can't see it, when you just don't know what that truth is. It's, it is the reward of surrender, of laying down and saying, "I, I, I don't, can't, I what? Um, <laughs> here, <laughs> you take it. That's that's the, that's this comforter that comes through through the guru, through the divine teacher. If you love me, keep my commandments." That to me has been the hardest teaching of my life. It's the one that has brought me to tears so many times. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's where our life has to touch the ground, you know. We can't just go around saying, oh yeah, I love God, oh yeah, I love Thakur, oh yeah, I'm a child of light, oh, I'm wonderful, I'm spiritual, I do my practice. Are you loving? Are you serving? Are you giving? Are you caring? Are you working for others? You know, what is your life? Has your life become about yourself? Has it become about your stuckness? You know, in my depression, I deal with that all the time. My my whole, it seems, some days I realize, God, my whole life today was about my own head. I didn't do anything for anybody out there. You know, that's the nature of this world. That's the nature of this world when it's not seen properly. If you love me, keep my commandments, keep pushing, keep trying, keep doing better, keep making every effort. That's how you know that you do love. That's how that you know that you are spiritual. That's how that you know that you do care, that you are created in the image of God. That's how you know, because it manifests in you, because it happens by what you are and who you are. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. This spirit of truth, this spirit of truth. So this, this Holy Spirit is that idea, the spirit of truth, the guru, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. And actually when you're in the world and you hear that spirit of truth within, what do you do? You immediately attack it. You know, who are you to tell me what I can do and what I can't do? Who are you? (laughs) The world cannot hear it or see him because it doesn't know him. It doesn't know that his nature is love. He doesn't know that it's in your best interest, that it's correcting you because of it's love for you. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live you also will live on that day. You will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So we have this wonderful counselor that that is the comfort of God. When the avatar is not here, (laughs) when we're, when we're forced to, to have to see him in a statue or in a picture That when we sit, we won't be alone in the shrine. That we have this inner spirit. We have the company, the presence of the divine. Saints have been made on that idea alone. To sit in the company of God. In the company of divine love. To touch that spirit of truth within. That that comforter. That lover of you. That source of all things that is within you it's what you feel when you go into an ancient temple in india and feel that stillness that that presence that hum of the divine the the the, the drug of the pilgrim <laughs> going from one place to another to feel that vibe to to catch that that sense of holiness that sense of purity so the overall effect this this idea of this 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 Spirit and this Son and this Father. How does it play out? In Galatians 2.20, we're looking at the Apostle Paul now. And he gives a very important fact. This is what it is to be spiritual. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So it's this notion, the same as, as, as what you're called to do. Put away the things of the body and mind. Put away the identity of this being the lower self. Identify with that super-self with that love, which is the beginning of all things, the present, the the manifestation of all things. So die to yourself. That's the big term of the Christians. Die before you die. Stop it with with the petty desires and needs of the body and mind. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. So you see that, that, that wonderful faith that grows, that grace of notion, that knowing that God has reached out to you, that, 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 that this divinity is, is accessible and it's part of you, it's, it is your inner nature, it, it, it fills you. And your task as a spiritual person is to let that manifest by remembering it always by remembering it in the most beautiful terms, not by remembering what's wrong with you or the reason you don't have it or that you can't get it or that you can't reach it or that you're this depressed or whatnot. No, it's remembering that it is yours, that it is a reality and letting it be a reality, letting it touch you, letting it inspire you, letting it make you great, letting it make you what you were born to be. Once having been asked by the Pharisees, they were the Jewish teachers, when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus replied, the kingdom does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So this is our famous verse in Galatians. The kingdom of God is within you. The treasure is within you. You've been created in that image. The Son has come to to, to, to turn the world upside down, to give you the the, the bearings so that your compass can be trued, to set your clock by, so that you can know what time it is. He's given the strength through the Spirit. And all of this is in God, the Father. I'm going to read quite a, a longer reading right here. This is directly from the book. This is going to be, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) <laughs> but it is it's my favorite part of the lecture this this is the thing that inspired the lecture so this is from a book called Waiting for God by Simone Weil now it was written in the 20s and Simone Weil was not a christian she belonged to no sect because she uh, she's fascinating really you'd have to read read uh, about her she's not a saint in the traditional sense because she didn't belong tradi- to a tradition and she says that god would not let her belong to a tradition because she said no tradition is Catholic in the true sense of the word. Catholic means universal. And so she had to stay outside of all traditions. And so she had a spiritual practice that was very uniquely her own. And she talks and she grew up in France. She was French, but she was Jewish parentage. Uh, And she grew up in France. And so she has a very interesting uh, take on things. Uh, She was a rebel and she was uh, part of the freedom movement there, the socialist movement there. And on and on and on. That's just to give you an idea of what a sassy young woman she was. She says, I'm going to read this whole thing and then put it in, in different words. God produces himself and knows himself perfectly, just as we in our miserable fashion make and know objects outside of ourselves. But before all things, God is love before all, before all things, God loves himself. This love this friendship of God is the Trinity, is the Godhead. Between the terms united by this relation of divine love, there is more than nearness. There is infinite nearness or identity. But resulting from the creation, the incarnation, and the passion, which is the crucifixion, there is also infinite distance. The totality of space, the totality of time, interposing their immensity, put an infinite distance between God and God. Lovers or friends desire two things. The one is to love each other so much that they enter into each other and make only one being. The other is to love each other so much that with half the globe between them, their union will not be diminished in the slightest degree. All that man vainly desires here below is perfectly realized in God. We have all those impossible desires within us as a mark of our destination, and they are good for us when we no longer hope to accomplish them. The love between God and God, which in itself is God, is the bond of double virtue, the bond that unites two beings so closely that they are no longer distinguishable and really form a single unity, and the bond that stretches across distance and triumphs over infinite separation, the unity of God, wherein all plurality disappears, and the abandonment where Christ believes he is left while never ceasing to love his Father perfectly, these are two forms expressing the divine virtue of the same love, the love that is God himself. The universe where we are living and of which we form a tiny particle is the distance put by love between God and God. We are a point in this distance Space, time, and the mechanism that governs matter are the distance. God has provided that when his grace penetrates to the very core of man and from there illuminates his being, he is able to walk on the water without violating any of the laws of nature. When, however, a man turns away from God, he simply gives himself up to the law of gravity. Then he thinks that he can decide and choose, but he is only a thing, a stone that falls. So we have here, the way that I digested this, because it's, it's easy to get lost in it, <laughs> is you have God as love. That's first and foremost above all. God is love. You have God the Father, who's the perfect noun of love. The perfect noun. In his perfection, there is no will, there is no desire, there is no lack. There is that ever-existing I am that statement of love and its ideal, boom. Then you have the son, who is the perfect verb, the perfect action of love, what love looks like when it moves. So you've got the noun and the verb, and the fullest love that this verb has is toward the perfect noun. So that's this bond of oneness that she's talking about, this this inseparability, the two cannot be separated although they can be seen separately. <laughs> and that the Holy Spirit is the tension that happens when you pull the action away from the noun. That tension, that's drawing them back to unity, is the Holy Spirit. And the whole world, all of creation, exists in degree between these two principles. Love the noun, love the action, and in their constant desire to be pulled back together into perfect unity. And the crucifixion, the, the 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 act of Jesus, is what? It is the perfect action of love to completely annihilate itself for the sake of unity, to return to that one so the two can be one, to completely abdicate, abnegate, to let go completely. So you have this divine play laid out there in the Trinity in the Godhead that's fulfilled in this idea of absolute sacrifice of the son who was one with the father and having all of us in between that play that all of us are feeling that tension you know knowing that this that this absolute exists but not being able to see it identifying it with all the verbs vibrating around us and running after them madly for what because the Holy Spirit is trying to draw that all into unity and we're trying to find that we have a sense of it we, we can smell it. We, we can smell it, but we can't find it. You know, we don't know where it is. And that's the struggle of spiritual life. That's what it all comes down to here, is this wonderful dance of this unifying nature of God to bring us all together, and that all of us are going to have to make that perfect response to love, which is absolute self-sacrifice, so that we can give up that lower sense of I and walk into the most beautiful existence of being, the I am, that was here before creation, will be here after creation, and is that existence of Satchitananda in and of itself. That's the Godhead, that's Jesus, and that's the crucifixion in one nutshell. <laughs> I'm sure if there was anybody here to argue, we could have lots of arguments about it. I wanted to read a book from the or a couple of verses from the Old Testament about God, the Father. And you know, in the Old Testament, they were kind of they they muddied the waters because uh, John one one hadn't been written yet, so they didn't have that notion of God as verb and God as noun. But it says here, he says, "The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise." I love that idea, that intimacy that we have. That we don't know. It's too lofty, too wonderful for us. But to search that depth of grace, to accept that that depth of grace, to accept that absolute profundity. You know, I, I shared a couple of weeks ago with you when I went up and stayed at that monastery up in New York, and I was sitting, it was later at night, and the church was empty there. It was one of these old, very nice. It's like over 100 years old church, but very simple, not ornate inside. White stucco walls and whatnot. And late at night, I was actually uh, in front of Mother, in front of the beautiful statue of Mary there. And uh, I was sitting there. I had just, just done my Japa meditation for a while, and then I was just, just praying. And I, 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 I felt like I understood something that night that I had never quite understood before that in this idea of absolute grace is the absolute acceptance of responsibility. That that God takes it on himself that I have a problem at all. Takes it on himself that my ignorance hurts me at all. And that because he sees it as his responsibility, he has so fully given himself to repairing that, that he's created an entire life for me where he has done nothing but through every day try and bring me back, try and teach me properly, try to get me to accept things as they are and to stop forcing them into what I want them to be. And what a beautiful moment that was, you know, To sit there and to know that this divine that you can touch, you can smell, you can feel it, you can sense it's there. To know that the love of that is real. To know that the depth of that is infinite. To know that it's fully accessible to you. That faith is only necessary for the first few steps. And after that you can fall into what is obvious. And lose yourself. And ultimately make the best Mother's Day present of yourself. That total abnegation of letting go of all of the ignorance that you've loved so much. And giving, giving the gift of yourself to yourself. As it were. Let's take a few moments to think about these things.